Welcome to Tarot for the End of Times, a podcast where we utilize the tarot as a tool to navigate through epochs of deep change. My name is Sarah Cargill. I'm an artist, cultural worker, and your host throughout the duration of this series. In each episode, I'll take a look at the archetypal figures presented in the Major Arcana cards from the Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck to discuss what each card has to say about navigating through cycles of change, chaos, and instability. Throughout each episode, I'll offer reflection questions and suggestions for exercises that might support you in inviting the energy and wisdom of these archetypes into your daily life and practice. If you'd like to support this podcast and the person who makes it, you can make a monthly donation through my page on anchor.fm. Your generous act of community care and reciprocity helps me to access the resources I need to make projects like this possible and sustainable. You can also support this work by sharing this podcast with your friends and loved ones, and most importantly, by tuning in. Thanks for joining me. So I'm someone who's kind of weird about my birthday. So a couple of years ago, to make it a little less weird, I started this little birthday tradition where I share an offering with the world just to, you know, ground me in the kind of energy that I want to experience more of in the coming year. Some years have looked like donating clothes or cooking a meal for someone, but in either case, it's become one of my favorite ways to set intentions for the year. The morning I edited this script and recorded this episode, I woke up hella early to greet the ass crack of dawn, namely because I live in a very noisy urban area and mornings are when the noise pollution is just at a minimum. But anyway, this is all going to make a lot more sense when you listen to this episode, but I was making my coffee and it was still dark outside. And as I slowly woke up in my kitchen, I looked out the window and I saw Venus now a morning star, shining bright as hell, looking mad gorgeous. And this was actually enough to prompt me to hop onto the roof of my apartment building and enjoy my coffee outside. When I got to the roof, Venus was, you know, of course, there to greet me. But to my right, I witnessed the full moon in Aries right at its peak. And as if my breath wasn't already taken away by this, a huge murder of crows flew across the sky and over my head. It was just like, it was like terrifying. It was giving Hitchcock, but it was also stunning. But then they just kept coming, like in droves, just wave after wave, murder after murder, flying across this Aries full moon. It was a spectacular dance between Aphrodite and Aries. And... There must have been like 150 to 200 of them. Really, what a way to get a green light from the universe. So if you're listening to this episode the day it drops or in the few days that follow, I just want to thank you for celebrating my birthday with me. And thank you for joining me on this nearly three and a half year ride. Oh my God. (laughs) More on this later, but for now... On to the final episode of the Major Arcana series. Dear listeners, I present to you, The World. (music) 
We open our final scene at the pit of a valley on top of the world. That is to say, one balmy midsummer evening, we landed at the Travertine Hot Springs in Bridgeport, California, a cluster of geothermally heated natural geysers tucked away in the Sierra Nevada mountain range. My partner and I arrived near dusk after spending a languid afternoon on the lake, refueling over a plate of assorted grilled meats and squash kebabs. The veil of dusk was beginning to cloak the valley as families filed out in droves into the parking lot. We didn't know how far we'd have to walk or if we'd make it to a geyser before nightfall, but we were already there, towels and bug spray in tow, with a dogged spirit that simply couldn't pass up the good parking we had found. It's a sign, I said, as we backed into the parking lot. Don't forget your headlamp, they replied. We descended into the valley with the setting sun, matching its quickened pace to take advantage of what little light was left. I had hoped that we'd find a map or perhaps a few landmarks to point us in the direction of the closest geyser, but we had no such luck. We reverse-followed the current of families moving out of the park, and the sounds of raucous laughter and conversation led us to our first encounter with the famed geysers. Yet, as we gleefully scuttled down the hill, about halfway down, the internal click of an intuitive no gave both of us pause. With just a look, we agreed to take a sharp right at the fork in the road, keeping our fingers crossed for other viable options. Our detour took us to the heart of the valley. A dewy layer of foliage cushioned our feet against the gravel beneath us as salt-encrusted dirt roads etched elaborate, meandering designs across the grassy plain. We dropped low to touch the ground, investigating this unexpected wonder and near disbelief. Is this seriously salt? they exclaimed as they glided the pads of their fingertips across hardened patches of salted soil. Swaths of plum, tangerine, and indigo stained the sky, and as the changing light continued to soften into darkness, so did we. The Sierras became silhouettes, and I looked up to see my curious beloved leaning over a shallow geyser that was, in all its beauty, far too small and murky for us to take a dip in. Hey, babe, I called from across the field. Lowering my voice to a whisper, I continued, you know, I think we need to get going. We don't know these mountains like that, and I'm really not trying to get lost in the dark. We clicked on our headlamps and settled to travel a little further down the road until the sun officially set. Turning to me, they said, don't worry, as they cupped my hands for reassurance. I know where we are and we'll find our way back. I nodded, but my nervousness lingered. It's not like I didn't believe or trust them. We've navigated way worse. But, you know, I've seen way too many Miyazaki films to let my guard down in a place like that. Have y'all seen Spirited Away? Right. <laughs> Just as we thought the valley couldn't dip any deeper, it did. And as we continued our descent, I had a funny feeling that we were being watched. Now... This in and of itself didn't alarm me, given what the land has likely bore witness to over the course of millennia, I think it's perfectly reasonable to screen human visitors. And so I heeded to my instincts as I made polite conversation with whoever or whatever was listening. Sharing your name and your intentions can go a long way, you know. About 20 minutes later, and with no geyser in sight, 
We paused at the bottom of the hill to reassess. My hesitation grew to concern as I realized, even if we were to turn back now, we'd still have to travel back up the hill in darkness, which grew less and less appealing with each passing moment. As the setting sun began to kiss the tip of the mountain range, I restated our intentions and asked for a grace period as we made our trek back up to the parking lot. I poured out some water over a nearby bush as a gesture of goodwill, giving thanks for their understanding and protection. We just didn't need that kind of action, you know? Please, I said, not today. Not here. We took a minute to just take everything in. The sunset had ripened the sky to a blackish purple, and the halation behind the mountain range casted a jagged ray of neon orange that cut clear through the horizon. A soft, voluptuous breeze enveloped us in an aromatic gust of blue sage, melting snow, mud, and salt. After a few passing moments of silent appreciation, I turned to my partner and said, You know... I think this is it. This is what we get to receive today, and I'm truly okay with that. Still looking towards the horizon, they nodded in agreement. There was, indeed, a tangible sense of feeling... complete. I suspect that the residents of the valley heard us. As we hiked back up the hill, to our absolute surprise, we discovered not one, but two bathing pools hidden on one of the rocky ledges that we had somehow missed on the way down. Turns out, a slight shift in perspective was all the illumination we needed to see in the dark. We raced up the hill as fast as our gay-ass water sandals would allow on such an incline, euphorically dousing the surrounding area with what drinking water we had left in our canteen. Upon reaching the slick, rocky edge, we carefully bundled our clothes on a dry surface, lit a citronella coil, and crawled into the bubbling geothermal pool. The mineralized water was surprisingly hot, percolating under what appeared to be the world's tiniest waterfall. Microscopic bubbles grazed our limbs as we gently lowered our tired bodies onto moss-covered slats. As we slid back and forth on the silky surface, giggling with complete abandon, we wondered how many generations of people were cradled in that very spot. How many conversations were had, dreams dreamt, tears shed, prayers spoken, songs sung, spirits lifted, and bodies renewed in this single four-by-four pool. I thought about my own mother, grandmother, and the aunties who have washed my hair and scrubbed my back in countless onsens, gossiping, laughing, consoling, planning, and scolding rambunctious kiddos all in one miraculous breath. As dusk fully surrendered to the night, the hills teemed with nocturnal life. Bats and birds of prey resurrected from their nests, gathering to break fast, and the mosquitoes attempted to do the same on our exposed shoulders, warming our bodies with the heat of source itself, directly from the earth's core. I felt my fear soften into resolve, and as we sat in silence, I savored the taste of sweetness that only darkness could offer. And there we sat, in quietude, 
plunged back into primordial darkness, baptized in the valley on top of the world. In her book, Opening to Darkness, Eight Gateways for Being with the Absence of Light in Unsettling Times, Zenju Earthlin Manuel speaks to the value of reorienting one's relationship to darkness and dark times. She asks, is it possible to be open enough to allow darkness to teach you without longing for light? What if we choose to go deeper into darkness instead of running from it? What might we find there beyond our longing for light? In posing these questions, Manuel simultaneously turns our attention towards the riches of darkness while challenging the unopposed cultural and spiritual dominance of what we've collectively come to call the light. The hegemony of light, in other words is worth questioning. She goes on to say, quote, we want to get out of darkness so much we may leave it prematurely, end quote, thus challenging what has become a kind of status quo within spiritual discourse, striving towards the light is just so often unquestioned. She describes the light as something that must be birthed or revealed from darkness. Darkness is thus as inevitable as it is sacred, and yet so often misunderstood because its primary language is chaos and destruction, but it's this very chaos that makes us available to profound change. The very nature of darkness facilitates a kind of spiritual growing up that can't be replicated by means of good vibes only, spiritual bypassing, and toxic positivity. She continues, quote, In opening to darkness, we can become more acquainted with the nature of not only the harshness of darkness, but also the sweetness of it, end quote. And it's my hope, as your humble host, that this body of work has served such a purpose. Suspended between heaven and earth, the central figure in the world card looks back as their body floats towards the opening of the portal to their future. This card reminds us to take stock of the journey that has gotten us to where we are before we finally clear the gateway to the next chapter. As number 21 of the Major Arcana series, the world card carries the vibrational signature of the number three. By now, we understand that tarot is, in many ways, a self-referential system. Therefore, energetically, this card looks back to the beginning, connecting us to the energy of the Empress, who is, as far as tarot is concerned, for better or for worse, she is mother. In her book, Manuel structures her exploration of darkness through what she calls the mandala of darkness. This mandala is made up of eight gateways, drawing from the Buddhist framework of the Eightfold Path for the cessation of suffering. Manuel's mandala of darkness is, on the one hand, a visual map for the meditation and visualization exercises she provides throughout the book. But she emphasizes that it's also a kind of choreography 
something that is created and embodied in real time as you move through the eight gateways. Now, each gateway or phase of unfolding, if you will, introduces us to its respective guardian. Manuel uses the language of dark mother or protector. Notably, before we proceed, she offers some thoughts around the historical and contemporary gendered presentation of these guardians and some of the tensions that it may bring up. She acknowledges the limitations of her own perspective as someone who benefits from cis-normativity, as well as the potential limitations of pronouns to describe something as expansive and fluid as gender and energy. I mean, you know, it's important to get people's pronouns right. And we're just acknowledging here that language constantly fails us and there are limitations to it. Along those lines... I also appreciate her speaking to the ways in which the English language in and of itself continues to perpetuate limiting binaries. She explicitly states that, quote, in spirit, there is no gender, end quote. And once again, I'd like to add that femininity, androgeneity, and masculinity are not fixed to any particular gender, but that they're energies that simply exist. Anyway, Just a friendly reminder that this is a kind of linguistic shorthand that we're working with, and for me, as a cis woman, and also as we collectively witness this, in my opinion, it's a little strange, okay, but definitely complicated resurgence of femininity coaching that, like, tends to creep into this corner of the internet, you know, I've just been noticing an uptick in that, and just to be clear, When I say strange, I just mean that this kind of content so often pushes uncontested standards of whiteness vis-a-vis gender politics, and it's, it's problematic. That's what I mean. I just wanted to make it a point to pause for nuance and invite people, particularly cis people, to unpack our ideas and baggage around gender as we explore our respective spiritual practices. Anyway. Moving on. Each dark mother offers guidance and protection as you pass through their respective gateways, helping you to get in right relationship with darkness as both a spiritual force and entity and a vessel for life. Manuel writes, quote, Dark mothers and protectors of the sacred darkness are disturbed by ugliness, deceit, dishonesty, mistreatment of others, oppression, corruption, exploitation, abuse, and so on. To disrupt what disturbs them, the wrath of a dark mother as protector comes forth with floods, incurable diseases, rampant plagues, pointless killings, and so on. Their fierceness is how they protect us in the midst of their love. In essence, protectors of darkness bring more darkness, which in turn brings a wider unknown landscape to stimulate awareness. Darkness is fierce and makes itself known when we are not aligned with the earth we walk upon, end quote. This stimulation of awareness is ultimately what we've come to know and speak of as enlightenment. But the larger point here is that awareness can't emerge from nothing. Something has to prompt it. Again, light must be birthed or revealed, and there is none of that 
without the presence of darkness. Now, let's go ahead and follow this through line that connects the world card and the empress card. Again, numerologically, these archetypes are connected. Thinking back to the Empress episode, you may recall the tale of Inanna and Ereshkigal, the story of estranged sisters who found their way back to each other and, eventually, themselves through the portal of darkness and the portal of their wounds. This story also speaks to the proverbial interplay between light and shadow and of the wholeness that becomes possible when we integrate one with the other. As Venus re-emerges as a morning star, as Inanna ascends from the underworld, we are reminded of the intimate partnership between death and life, shadow and light. But the story of Inanna and Ereshkigal isn't just the story of estranged sisters, but also of a goddess estranged from her own shadows. Along these lines, the world and the empress co-steward the role of Dark Mava, reminding us that rejecting our shadows is still a form of self-abandonment. The world card invites what Dr. Tema from the Homecoming podcast calls sacred pause, initiating the kind of integration that helps us to bridge the gap between who we were and who we've become. The connection between the world and the empress highlights shadow work as both a bridge and an indispensable experience that one must undergo to fulfill the assignment that is the fool's quest. In this journey back to yourself, all versions are welcome. Given all this talk about integration, the world card is unsurprisingly, one of the more symbolically dense cards within the Major Arcana series. The nude human figure in the center of the card is framed by a laurel wreath and wrapped in a dancing ribbon of purple cloth. As you may recall from the Justice episode, purple symbolizes status, experience, and it's a color that projects a certain level of regality and authority. The laurel wreath symbolizes victory, and it's fastened at the top and bottom, as above so below, with a red ribbon that forms an infinity symbol, acknowledging the cyclical cycle of beginnings and endings. But it's also worth noting that there are a few decks out there that depict this wreath as an Ouroboros, much like the one we see in the Magician card, so let's revisit this symbol. Carl Jung was a Swiss psychologist whose contributions to the field of psychology ran parallel with his contributions to modern occult studies. Given this, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring him up at least once in this podcast, so here we go. Jung's research has significantly shaped how we collectively conceptualize archetypes in Western psychology and the occult. He described the Ouroboros as a mandala of alchemy, and in volume 14 of his collected works, Jung wrote the following, quote, The Ouroboros is a dramatic symbol for the integration and assimilation of the opposite, i.e. the shadow. This feedback process is at the same time a symbol of immortality since it is said of the Ouroboros that he slays himself and brings himself back to life, fertilizes himself, and gives birth to himself. He symbolizes the one who proceeds from the clash of opposites, end quote. Jung underscores the necessity of shadow integration to activate spiritual agency, 
and also psychological healing. And when contextualized through the story of Inanna's descent, this life-sized Ouroboros not only connects us to the story of the Empress, but it also harkens us back to the energy of the death card, where we had a close encounter with this scorpionic archetype. Go ahead and revisit the death episode if you need a little reminder. Both the Empress and death cards are, in their own way, life-giving archetypes. And it's through this connection that we are reminded of the binding contract between death and life, endings and beginnings. And this shifts us from a linear orientation to time and progress to a cyclical one, a seasonal one. This brings me to the four corners of the world card, where once again, we encounter the four evangelists as we did with the Wheel of Fortune. So here we see the angel, the lion, the eagle, and the ox, who represent St. Michael, St. Mark, St. John, and St. Luke, respectively. As a reminder, these figures can also be interpreted as representations of the fixed signs of Aquarius, Leo, Scorpio, and Taurus, and their respective elements of air, fire, water, and earth. Other interpretations might suggest that these figureheads represent the four seasons, the four tarot suits, the four cardinal directions. Regardless of what personally resonates for you, the important takeaway here is that these figures offer witnessing, stability, and encouragement for safe passage. Numerologically, the number four carries with it the vibration of stability, and so these figures post up in these corners to safeguard this period of passage by holding the container for your change. I'm also noting here the significance of being witnessed by fixed signs rather than, say, mutable or cardinal signs. As someone whose spiritual practice rests on a foundation of ancestral veneration, to me, these fixed signs carry the energetic signature of ancestral presence. Parenthetically, I've seen different people say different things about this, but generally speaking, I've seen people assign the planet Saturn to the world card, and Saturn is a planet that is heavily associated with ancestors as well. So just putting a note in there about that. Anyway, to me, the assembly of all these fixed signs is a nod to the ancestors of our lineage and also ancestors who tend to the collective. Our ancestors, by virtue of being, well, you know, dead, <laughs> can't experience change in the way that they did while in human form. In other words, they are in many ways, I'm not speaking in absolutes here, but you know, in many ways, they're energetically fixed. But this very fixed nature is what allows them to show up with the kind of guidance and protection and most of all, spiritual and energetic stability that we need while we undergo our own transformation. Moreover, the presence of these figures speaks to the importance of finding our way back to community. As archetypes like the High Priestess, the Prince of Liminality or the Hangman, and the Hermit suggests, there are certainly going to be seasons where isolation is a necessary step towards deepening your practice. But if your spirituality keeps you separate from the world at large, it may be time, as the world suggests, to take pause and reassess. Bell Hooks once said, quote, 
no one is healed in isolation, end quote. And if I may, I'd like to add, no one is changed in isolation either. In deepening our relationship to these archetypes, we place interdependence at the center of this practice. Minus a few exceptions, really, the only way to have corrective emotional experiences and spiritual experiences at that and to seal our relational wounds is to engage in relationships with others. Sorry. (laughs) And so as we turn to the ethereal elders of the collective, the world card invites us to consider how we might support each other in becoming the elders we ourselves needed within the context of our own communities. In October 1993, In front of over 2,000 participants at the Day of Mindfulness event at Spirit Rock Center in Woodacre, California, Thich Nhat Hanh delivered his closing remarks to the Sangha, or community, in attendance. Titled, The Next Buddha May Be a Sangha, he shared the following, quote, Our practice should be supported by the people around us, and we can learn how to support them in return. We support them by looking deeply so we can recognize the seeds of peace, joy, and loving kindness in them. We touch those seeds. We water these seeds every day in order to make other persons bloom like flowers. And when these persons bloom like flowers, we all become happier. We have to help each other in our practice. The practice of meditation is not an individual matter. We have to do it together. It is possible the next Buddha will not take the form of an individual. The next Buddha may take the form of a community, a community practicing understanding and loving kindness, a community practicing mindful living. And the practice can be carried out as a group, as a city, as a nation. End quote. Later, in 2008, Thich Nhat Hanh continued to speak on the importance of Sangha in his article titled, The Fertile Soil of Sangha. He wrote, 2,500 years ago, Shakyamuni Buddha proclaimed that the next Buddha will be named Maitreya, the Buddha of love. I think Maitreya Buddha may be a community and not just an individual. If you have a supportive Sangha, It's easy to nourish your bodhicitta, the seeds of enlightenment. If you don't have anyone who understands you, who encourages you in the practice of the living dharma, your desire to practice may wither. Your sangha, family, friends, and co-practitioners, is the soil, and you are the seed. No matter how vigorous the seed is, if the soil does not provide nourishment, your seed will die. A good sangha is crucial for the practice. You cannot achieve enlightenment by locking yourself in your room. Transformation is possible only when you are in touch. End quote. The Mavas of Darkness within the Major Arcana series offer to us the darkness of that soil. And with that, I'd like to thank y'all, the global collective, our sangha, for not only making this work possible, but for contributing to its meaning. 
in studying change, I have come to embody and steward it in ways that were only possible in Sangha, in community. Tarot for the End of Times has, over the course of nearly three and a half years, developed a life of its own, reaching beyond the limits of my imagination and re-articulating itself through you. As an artist, this has and continues to be both my greatest joy and my deepest fear to have something of my own creation take on new life through others. It's a feeling that exists in the place where lightness and darkness intersect, where the excitement of possibility meets the fear of the unknown. And I hold this feeling with enormous gratitude and an immense sense of responsibility. While I hope this ethos reveals itself through the work, what I wish to make clear in this final episode of this particular iteration of Tarot for the End of Times is this. I'm not here to serve as a beacon of light, but rather a friend in the dark. And I thank each of you for co-creating what has become the longest durational experiment in collective dreaming and community care that I've ever conducted. Thank you, dear listeners, for trusting me to facilitate such a process with you. To conclude, the world card in the upright position speaks to completion, fulfillment, and wholeness closure and belonging. It's the breath that primes you to sing your next song, a moment of mindful silence, an inhale as you integrate your accomplishments and lessons within the larger arc of your story. If this card appears for you, take a moment to welcome this rare joy. The world card in reverse can indicate delayed endings, or perhaps a sense of emptiness or agitation that may come from feeling a lack of closure. It can also point to the personal closure we can give to ourselves, even as the world around us leaves our loose ends billowing in the wind. This is kind of annoying advice, but if the world card appears in reverse, just try to be present with what is. You don't have to want it. You don't have to like it. You don't even have to fix it. But in being present with what is, you get to offer yourself the gift of testimony and perhaps an opportunity to find refuge in your community. I know I announced some time ago that we had entered season two of the pod, but in retrospect, I was wrong. I was wrong. Okay, dear listeners, this episode is what brings me to the end of cycle one or iteration one of Tarot for the End of Times. It's been an absolute honor and pleasure to be your host, and I look forward to my return. Oh, don't worry, I will be back. I'll be back soon to talk about what's next for us here on the pod, so if you want to be alerted when future episodes drop, go ahead and follow this podcast on whatever platform you use to tune in, and I thank those who have already subscribed to this podcast. A quick heads up, I haven't forgotten about the Q&A episode, y'all, just don't worry. Go back to the Sun episode if you have no idea what I'm referring to, but just know I'm tracking it, but I have a few more things to share before we get there, so you still have time to submit your questions. If you'd like to submit a question in my DMs, you can find me on the internets on Instagram at snakeskin.tarot, where we continue the conversation, so I invite you to stay connected with me there. 
Thank you to everyone who has followed and commented on these various platforms. It really supports the work and it also lets me know how I'm doing. So thank you for the feedback. Also, I got to remember that not everyone has an Instagram account. That was my bad. So if you happen to not have an IG account, but you have a burning question you want to ask, I invite you to submit your tarot questions in the comment section of this episode. I know I said, you know, just submit DMs via Instagram, but I'm trying to make this more accessible. So here we go. This platform Spotify in particular doesn't let me respond to your input, but rest assured it will be accounted for. Lastly, if you'd like to book a one-on-one session with me or offer monetary support for this work to keep it free and available to the public, I've left some links for you in the show notes. Until we meet next time, please take good care of yourselves and each other. I'm your host, Sarah motherfucking Cargill. And I officially bring this transmission to a close.